Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Jemima. Uh, let's pray, then we're looking at Acts 17. <clears throat> Loving Father, we pray that you would um, be better to us than we deserve tonight and that you would help us to hear your word and that your words would really mean something to us because uh, they are the words of eternal life. So speak them into our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my family and I were lucky enough to go to on a holiday where we stayed in some hotels uh, a little while ago, and um, we went. We split into male room and female room just because of the arrangement of our family, and we all got hooked on different um, TV shows. Um, the, the the girls got hooked on Say Yes to the Dress, <laughs> and we got hooked on another show in which the contestants have to forge a sword or some sort of blade in a forge uh, in, the, uh, in the studio, and at the end of the show, their weapons are tested for strength and functionality and sharpness. Uh, and the climax of the show is when they hang this big sort of hunk of meat in the, in the room, and um, the expert, the blade expert, tests the blades by, by, you know, doing the sword thing and stabbing and slashing and so forth to see how their weapons cut and stab. Um, and we found the show strangely compelling. Um, I can see by faces that certain people here have watched it too and have enjoyed it. Well, in the New Testament, the Word of God is compared to a sword. Um, in Ephesians 6, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit. And in Hebrews 4, uh, it says, The Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, the issue that we're going to be thinking about this evening is what that sword needs to cut through in order to really penetrate a person. What does the spirit need to do in order for a person to be saved? Uh, last week, Acts chapter 16, we, we saw two marvellous stories of people being saved. Uh, Lydia, the Lord, opened her heart to receive Paul's message and the jailer, what must I do to be saved? He was obviously opened up as well. Uh, and there's a promise in those story, stories that God can save anybody, God can open any heart. But what does he need to overcome in order to get through a person's exterior to the heart? In Acts 17, the emphasis seems to be more on the barriers, the, the hard shell that people have around themselves. God's still saving people in um, this chapter. But with others, their hard hearts stop them from believing and the word doesn't get through. The chapter has two halves. In the first half, we're shown people who had a really strong investment in their belief system, but they hold those beliefs without any integrity. And then in the second half, we're shown people who had an interest in new ideas, but were not really interested in investing in the truth if and when they heard it. So um, investment without integrity and interest without investment are the two big uh, headings tonight. This issue is really important because God wants to open you up to his truth as well as me. Um, those who aren't Christians might want to think about how to approach this question of what is ultimately true. How are you going to actually get to the truth? Um, how can you work that out with integrity? Might, what might be blocking you from finding the truth? And if you're a Christian, you're somebody who has convictions as to what the truth is, you believe in Jesus, but still there are parts of you that resist the truth 
And God still needs to wield his sword on you and open you up to the truth. And perhaps you're at a point where you're not growing as a Christian and you're not changing as a Christian anymore and you've sort of been there and heard that. Why is that? Why is the word not penetrating you anymore? What's blocking it? So the first half of the chapter shows us investment without any integrity. And here we're looking at the Thessalonians versus the Bereans. In the big story of Acts, the gospel is moving outwards. It's moving towards the west into Europe. It arrives in Thessalonica in chapter 17, where there was a Jewish synagogue. It says, as was his custom, this is verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. So we're to understand that he preached the same kind of message, synagogue message that he preached in chapter 13, which was five or six weeks ago or something. Uh, lots of Old Testament and showing how it was fulfilled in Christ. In verse 4, there's the response. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So again, Gentiles, that is non-Jews, were embracing the gospel. Some Jews believed, but when you read on, you find out that on the whole, the Jews were not impressed by what Paul had to say. They became jealous in verse 5. And they resorted to dirty tricks. Uh, they grabbed the bad characters who were hanging around in the marketplace and they stirred up a riot. Um, in the King James, the authorised version, it says, the Jews took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Um, and the Jews claim that these Christians had caused trouble all over the world, that they were proclaiming a king against Caesar, this sort of king called Jesus, so you better do something about this. The mob couldn't find Paul and Silas, but they found Jason, who'd become a Christian, and the Christians were meeting in his house. So they grabbed Jason and they hauled him before the city officials, who made him put money down as a guarantee that the missionaries were to leave the city. And so they leave, and they move on to Berea, and they preach in the synagogue in Berea, and find a different response. See verses 11 and 12. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So in Thessalonica, they were jealous, but in Berea, they were more noble. The only thing that spoiled things in Berea was the arrival of the Thessalonian Jews who had chased the missionaries to Berea and tried to start a riot there as well. So in Thessalonica, they were threatened by the gospel and they refused to engage in what was being said. They just started a riot and drove the missionaries out of their city. In Berea, they were probably also threatened by the gospel, but they, yet they listened and they engaged in the Christian message um, and they tested the claims of Christianity. Let's sit down and think about this. That really is the difference between shouting and talking. If you are shouting at someone, then you're not listening to them. If you're talking with someone, then it is a two-way thing. And as we know, shouting is rude. It's not noble to shout at people, whereas talking and listening is polite and respectful. But Luke is not just giving us a lesson in manners. Um, he's also, it's a lesson in how to get to the truth about anything. If all you do is close your ears and start shouting whenever your opinion is threatened, you're never going to grow in your understanding of anything. 
If when somebody says something that you don't like, you just form a mob and cancel them, then no one is going to get any closer to the truth if that's what any, everybody is doing. That, of course, is what people do these days. When they hear something they don't like, they try to cancel the person. And that's why our society is getting dumber at the moment rather than smarter, and it's not a noble society that we're living in. Most importantly, we encounter this when we try to, to preach the gospel about Jesus, as Paul did in Thessalonica, shouting and ridicule and false accusations and dirty tricks to just try to shut the Christians up. The Christian claim has, been, has survived almost 2,000 years of people's scepticism, and yet there are billions of Christians around the world. And yet it's not often that people, around us at least, it would seem, are willing to listen and engage with the evidence for the Christian faith. Uh, we seem to see a Thessalonian sort of reaction around us. But we also need to be careful here as well if, if, you, if we're Christians, because Christians can be just as guilty of this, that is, putting our hands over our ears and just shouting. If we refuse to listen and engage and talk about the ideas of others, all that will show is that we're insecure about our own faith. If um, you're the only one who ever gets to talk, what does that say about how you feel about your own faith? If we believe that we have the truth, why would we fear other ideas? We don't defend the truth by refusing to engage with anybody else's ideas. We defend the truth by listening to others and considering alternatives side by side. And Luke assures us here that there's no need to be scared if that's what we do, because the gospel is true and it will commend itself if you put it side by side with other claims. Uh, notice that the noble Bereans listened and examined the gospel and in verse 12 it says, as a result of putting the gospel side by side with other things, many of them believed. In other words, the truth commended itself. Whereas many je jealous Thessal Thessalonian Jews just covered their ears and started shouting. So for the gospel to penetrate, the Holy Spirit has to cut through all the prejudices and the baggage and the defensiveness and the pride that stops people from opening their ears. We all know that it's humbling to have to change your mind about things. But that humility before the truth um, is, was what made the Bereans noble while the Thessalonians were just ignorant and grubby. So that's the first issue here, investment without integrity, which stopped these people from even uh, listening to the gospel. When Paul moves on from Berea, he finds a different issue altogether. Um, in Athens, in verses 16 to 34, he finds interest without investment. So here in Athens, their ears were open, but their hearts were not open. They were never going to invest in whatever they heard. Uh, as we read here, um, Paul had to leave Berea quickly because of the angry mob, but his colleagues were able to stay, and so he goes to Athens on his own. In verses 16 to 21, we've got the context. The context in Athens is described by two notable things. The first is the religious idolatry there. It says, Paul was greatly distressed to find that the city was full of idols. There were statue, little statues everywhere and big statues, and people thought there was power attached to these statues, very superstitious um, and that's what um, distressed Paul. And his response was to preach the gospel in the synagogue and in the marketplace. These people 
they don't know what's going on. They don't know reality. I've just got to tell them about Jesus. Now, Athens, the second thing that marked Athens was the intellectual curiosity. Really amazing place, sort of the ultimate university town. Um, going back hundreds of years, there were intellectuals who sort of hang, hung around in, in Athens, and it would seem that people in the marketplace were used to philosophers sort of talking to them about their ideas. And so Paul went to the marketplace and he had a go as well. And he was noticed by some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there, and they invited him to speak at the Areopagus, which was the place where ideas were officially tested. But notice the attitude of these people as they invite him to the Areopagus. Some said, uh, verse 18, what is this babbler trying to say? So not a very kind of friendly, open attitude. But then they smile very politely when they face Paul and they say, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting to us? And Luke explains in verse 21 where they're coming from. Um, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I think that comment is not just a throwaway comment. It indicates um, the big problem for these people living in Athens. The gospel was just another new idea to them. They, all they wanted to do was talk about ideas. Paul went and he preached the gospel to them anyway, and Luke gives a summary of his message in verses 22 to 31. Paul's message uh, there was, is the classic example of how he preached the gospel to Gentiles. He tailored it perfectly to his audience. He uh, starts where they're at. He doesn't quote the Old Testament at them because they don't really recognise the Old Testament as any authority, but his ideas are still completely biblical. And he doesn't pull any punches. He confronts their error and he's not scared to say to these big brain people, you need to repent. In particular, his speech attacks the two big features of his audience. Firstly, he speaks against smorgasbord religion. Um, he opens by noting all the religions in their city. You're very religious, he says. Uh, they were proud of how big their smorgasbord was. You know, you can find anything here in terms of religion. But then he notes the altar to the unknown God. So they admitted they didn't know everything. And he says, well, I'm now going to remove your ignorance. That's a pretty plucky thing for him to say. You know, he's basically saying, if you knew my God, then you wouldn't need anything else. There's no room for other gods. There's no room for superstition if you know my God. And let me tell you about him. And he says four big things about God that might sound very basic to us, but if this has not been your background, then this could completely change your worldview and turn your world upside down. First of all, Paul tells them that one God made everything. Um, the Epicureans believed, uh, the Epicureans are mentioned, they believed that everything, including the gods, is made up of atoms and atoms are eternal. The Stoics, they're also mentioned, they believed that God is like a kind of world soul that's in everything. Paul says, no, God is separate to his creation and he made everything from nothing and so he is eternal and creation isn't. God made everything. There is a creator that stands apart from the creation. Secondly, Paul says, God rules everything. Uh, so it's not lots of gods everywhere, each god ruling his or her own little patch. Paul wasn't just advocating a couple more foreign gods as some of them thought he might be doing. Rather, in verse 26, Paul says to them, from one man he made all the nations that, e that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
Um, so God's not another, just another local God. He is the supreme God who gave all the nations their place in the world and in history. So thirdly, God can't be contained. Paul says God doesn't live in man-made temples. He is the one who gives us our places to live. And he's not done any favours by human hands. It's he who gives us life and breath and everything else. And so fourthly, Paul says, God is close to everyone. If we depend on him, as every human being depends on God, whether they know it or not, then we are supposed to acknowledge that by seeking him and reaching out for him and trying to find him. There is a God who is giving me life and breath and everything else, so I need to somehow try to connect with him. That should be how people think. And he notes the shreds of truth in the pagan poets where he quotes them. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring. And therefore the point is, so we should be trying to get closer to this one supreme God who is so close to us as our creator and our provider. And that really is the challenge here in his sermon. What have you done with this God? He made you and he sustains you. He's determined your place in the world. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be close to him. And yet, what have you done? He says to them. Verse 29, you've used your human design and skill to fashion your own gods, which can never adequately present, uh, represent the eternal God. You've invented a smorgasbord of gods so that you can pick and choose and so that you never have to face the one true God. People who flit around from God to God, um, it's just an excuse for not facing the one true God, according to Paul. And then, so that's the first big feature of the, of the audience is, is smorgasbord religion. The second big feature is despairing philosophy. Athens at, at this time has been described as being in the late afternoon of its glory. That is, it's fading. It used to be really wonderful. A few hundred years before this, this, there was Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all those people that you've heard of, but can't remember what they said or you've, whatever. But since then, the Athenians, they'd been defeated in battle by the Spartans and I really don't know much about the history, but there's movies about the Spartans, isn't there? Um, and the Romans had taken over. So they were basically, by this stage, living on the memory of past glory. And the two philosophical schools that are mentioned here in, in Acts 17, Epicureanism and Stoicism, suited those times of sort of decline and hopelessness. They were philosophies without hope. The Epicureans believed that there is no afterlife. And so the best that you can do is live a life of tranquility by disengaging from the hustle and the passions of the world. Just find some nice friends and take up gardening and cross-stitch and that's pretty much the best that you can do with your life, a life of peace and quiet. Sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? But if that's all there is, then it's absolutely hopeless and meaningless, really. The Stoics also believed that there is no afterlife, but they said the best that you can do is live your life in line with reason and virtue. This is the best possible world, so learn to accept your fate with logic, calmness and self-control. That was the Stoic approach. And lots of people like the Stoic approach. That sounds kind of noble. Um, but again, it's a philosophy without ultimate hope. Paul, on the other hand, proclaims a God who has a plan for the future, who is going to do something about it. He proclaims a God who involves humans in his eternal plan. You have a part in God's eternal plan, as do I. 
How do we know that humans have a part in his eternal plan? Well, he's raised a man from the dead, whom he has appointed as the judge, verse 31. And he takes our ignorance of him very seriously and he says to everybody, you've got to repent, that is, you've got to turn around, in verse 30. So this is saying that human lives have far more significance and meaning than the Epicureans or the Stoics thought. We're not just a collection of atoms. We're not just drops returning to the ocean. We were made for relationship with God. You were made for a relationship with your creator. And in God's future, no one will be ignorant of him. Everybody will, will face him. So it's not just a call to make the best of this life because there's nothing else. It's a call to be ready for the next life, which is coming, and repent. Turn to God because human beings do matter to him and he holds us responsible. So you see, Paul tailored a message that was just right for his audience here and he pulled no punches. Um, and we might think, well, this was a really wonderful sermon that he preached to them. If you spend some time reflecting on it, you'll think, well, this is profound stuff. But the outcome of his, um, of his speech here was actually pretty sad, I think. Um, some of them sneered, it says, when they hear of the resurrection, because Greeks just denied the idea that there's anything beyond this life. Others said to Paul, hey, we'd like to hear you again on this subject. But I think it wasn't because they sensed hope and eternity in Paul's words. It was interest without investment. Yes, we'll hear this again, sure. And so Paul didn't bother going back to the Areopagus, um, despite their invitation. He didn't even wait for Timothy and Silas to join him in Athens, as he was supposed to. Remember, he'd arranged for them to catch up with him in Athens, but he didn't wait for them. He just left and ended up in Corinth, and they had to catch up with him later. He wasn't into a whole lot of endless talk that went nowhere. He didn't care about intellectual exercises. He preached for people's souls. He wanted repentance rather than just talk. There were some people in Athens who did believe, but generally it was interest without investment. It was curiosity without commitment. Now, there are those who are happy to have Jesus sort of on the front porch of their lives, um, but they never let him inside the house. Uh, they'll come to church and they'll talk and they'll ask questions and they'll dabble, but that's really all that they'll do. The door to the inside of the house is barred. He's only allowed on the front porch. They're not hostile, they're still polite. Uh, perhaps they enjoy intellectual discussions about God, perhaps they enjoy the social aspect of Christian fellowship, but repentance is not on their agenda. God remains an idea to play with rather than a person to be reconciled to. That's also something that the spirit needs to cut through with his sword. He needs to use the sword to, to bash open the front door of the house so that God can come in. And Christians too can be a little bit guilty of this, treating our God as an idea to be played with rather than a master to be served and loved. Um, our small groups can end up like this if you've been in Bible study groups for a little while, just sitting around looking for a new idea to examine, uh, purely intellectual exercise. The smarty pants people in the group get to talking with one another and everybody else just kind of looks on. And it never makes a difference to anybody's life. And the truth never penetrates any souls. And no one ever repents of anything. It's all just talk. We can be a little bit like that as well. But the profound truth, truths that Paul is, is uh, preaching about here should do much more than just cause us to talk about God as just an idea. The one supreme God 
made us and he directs our lives and he governs uh, our destinies and gives us each breath that we take at every moment and he is not far from each one of us and he wants us to know him personally. He wants each of us to open the front door to him, not just let him onto the porch, but all the way into the house. He wants our hearts to be open so that we love and serve him, not just talk about him. So I think this chapter, um, it says lots of things and you could take different angles at it, but um, what I want to show you here is the danger of being, firstly, too set in your thoughts and opinions so that you don't know how to listen, the Thessalonian problem, or the danger of, yes, listening, but not being truly open and just wanting to talk. That's the Athenian problem. So we might ask ourselves uh, tonight, um, when is the last time I changed my mind about anything significant? Uh, we're also always so set in what we think. Are we really open? Uh, when is the last time that I, that I actually consciously repented of anything and changed my direction because of something that I've heard? The Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is well able to penetrate right into your soul if God chooses to do that. And we ought to pray that he does, um, even though that's scary because it's scary to change your mind or to be threatened by something new. But we do need to pray that God would penetrate our souls with the truth. And we need to watch for those effects in our lives and we need to open ourselves up to God. Open the front door to God and say, come in, bring your truth into my life. So let me lead us in prayer that God would open us up in that way and that we would uh, hear his truth. Loving Father, we thank you that you're, you've released your gospel into the world and it is able to, to cut deeply into us. Um, we're sorry, Lord, that we put up so many barriers and so, so often we're proud and stubborn and um, we're so set in our own thoughts and ideas and we're not humble. We pray, Lord, that you would cut through all of that and uh, your word would penetrate our souls, that you would be changing us, changing our minds and changing our lives with your truth. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance here that the gospel is true and that we can trust you to promote that truth in us. So please do that by the work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.